Welcome everyone to this seminar, which is jointly hosted by the Middle East Center here at the LSE and LSE Cities. I'm Fran Tonkas from LSE Cities, and I'm very pleased to be welcoming our speakers tonight and maintaining order in the course of this discussion. Um, just to tell you what is going to happen, we have three speakers to my right who will be uh, speaking in turn for around 15 minutes each. So we'll have quite a lot of time for questions and discussions afterwards. I have to ask you all, as usual, there are various rituals to um, the role of chairing. I have to ask you to silence your phones while the seminar is taking place and also to inform you that the session will be recorded, will be audio recorded. I also have to tell you that in the event of an emergency, we will evacuate the building using the stairs by the lifts, nine floors down. Sammy, I'll help you down in the, in the event of evacuation. Someone will carry you in that event. Also, if you would like to tweet about this event, we are using the very evocative hashtag LSEViolence. We might get quite a lot of other comments on that um, Twitter feed, but that's the one to tweet using, hashtag LSEViolence. So it remains to me only to introduce our speakers tonight, collaborators in a really impressive project on the theme of violence and the city in the modern Middle East, which has now appeared um, in this international and interdisciplinary volume with a number of uh, really wonderful contributions. Um, and we have three of the contributors as well as the editor here tonight. So Nalita Fukaro will be opening, who is the editor of the new book. Um, she's a reader in modern, in modern history of the Middle East at SOAS, our sister institution just up the road. Her research focuses on the Arab world and its frontier societies with a particular interest in Iraq, the Persian Gulf, the Arabian Peninsula, Kurdistan, and Iran. So that's um, quite a breadth of regional and uh, political issues to cover. She is the author of a number of books, including, along, along with this one, uh, The Other Kurds, Yazidis in Colonial Iraq. Nalita will be followed by Ulrika Freitag, who has joined us from the Zentrum Moderna Orient in Berlin, where she is currently the director. She's an historian of the modern Middle East, and she's also a professor of Islamic studies at the Freie Universität in Berlin. And her research is concerned with urban history in a global context, as well as with a particular interest in the Middle East. And finally, we're very pleased that hot off the plane from Copenhagen, <laughs> we're joined by Rasmus Christian Elling, who is um, Associate Professor in the Department for Cross-Cultural and Regional Studies, I had to check I got that right, at the University of Copenhagen. Uh, he teaches Middle East Studies there, as well as Global Urban Studies. So I'm glad to have another urbanist on the panel. He's particularly interest in the, interested in the social, cultural, and political life, and as he puts it, occasionally the death of cities, and uh, uses historical and ethnographic methods um, in his work on modern Iran in particular. So let me hand over firstly to Nalida. Well, thank you very much, Fran, for uh, having agreed to chair this event. Uh, and I must thank, of course, the uh, LSE Cities program for hosting us, but also the Middle East Institute or Middle East Center here at LSE, and particularly Toby Dodge, who is a long-standing friend, friend and colleague, uh, who's, ma who's also made this possible. Um, uh, now, um, in, the, in this kind of post-Arab Spring age, which is some, sadly, one of authoritarian revival, 
Islamic resurgence and political chaos, we are increasingly confronted with fractured Middle Eastern cities and societies which are subject to the rule of violence. Among many examples, very sad examples, Raqqa and Mosul under the control of ISIS, archetypal carceral cities where the civilian population is still trapped, forcibly detained in a giant prison, subject to the enforcement of jihadist discipline and horrendous punishment. Of course, not to speak of Aleppo, which is very much uh, in the news today. Um, the issue of subversive, divided, and violent urbanism in and beyond the metropolitan squares that initiated the Arab Spring is starting, as, as I speak at this moment, to coalesce in an important body of interdisciplinary scholarship dealing with the post-2011 era. Yet, if we look at the historiography of the Middle East in the 19th and 20th centuries, urban violence has not been a particularly prominent topic of research, to say the least. In fact, uh, it is a, the violent state and its agents, rather than violent urbanism per se, that has taken center stage uh, in the literature. Cities has, have been often portrayed uh, as the playground of state administration rather than looked at in their own right. Uh, not always, but often. While in reality, as we all know from cities all over the, over the world, state authorities is one of the variables, one of the very many variables in sort of urban architectures of power, if, if we want to put it like that. This volume, Violence and the City in the Modern Middle East, uh, Alongside the first edited book produced as part of the urban violence project that uh, Fran has just mentioned, and here you can see the cover of the first edited book, who came out in 2015, and is called, as you can see, Urban Violence in the Middle East, Changing Cityscapes in the Transition from Empire to Nation State, and it was edited by Ulrike Freit, I was here, myself, uh, Claudia Graui, and Nora Laffey, who unfortunately cannot be here with us. Now, this Violence and the City is the second uh, of uh, the two edited volumes and has come out uh, in March 2016. So both volumes, in a sense, were conceived in order to address this gap uh, uh, in the literature, but very importantly also to encourage further work uh, on the topic by Middle Eastern uh, historians, but uh, in general by urban specialists. Now, um, the, the project actually ran from 2011 and 2014, uh, and Rasmus Selling was here with us, and I'm actually very lucky because I've got two very important people here in, in the project, because actually Ulrike co-led the project with myself, and Rasmus was here for two years, I think, 2011-13, as postdoctoral research fellow as part of, uh, of the project. Now, so uh, this edited collection is about the violent past of cities uh, and of violence as a particular and game-changing experience of urban life and spatial politics. And spatial politics is quite interested in all this. It is in some ways about the, state, the states of violence experienced by cities 
under exceptional, ordinary, and extraordinary conditions. Not about the violence of states in cities, as I was saying before, and I'm here par paraphrasing uh, a very influential volume, uh, the title of a very influential volume edited by the late Venezuelan anthropologist Fernando Coronil, who was more, more concerned with violence rather than cities, but and it doesn't matter. Now, um, in a sense, uh, this volume, but also the previous edited volume, both volumes, encourage, encourage Middle Eastern historians and specialists with historical inclinations to, and I'll quote here, uh, see like a city. And of course, uh, I'm quoting Warren Magnusson uh, um, that actually opens, uh, this, one of his quotes uh, opens the, uh, uh, the book. Of course, uh, we, we are encouraging sort of historians and urban sp and, and uh, uh, kind of regional specialists to see like a city without, of course, uh, losing sight uh, of the mighty interventionist powers of states. And indeed, you know, in the collection itself, we have two contributions in particular uh, that uh, um, address this issue, and uh, this is the contribution by Dina Khoury, uh, on Basra in the 1980s and during Intifada, the uh, uprisings in 1991, and uh, uh, the all urban scenario of post-1952 Cairo, which is uh, discussed by Yasser Sheshtawi in, in, in one of the chapters, uh, whereby you have basically an analysis of the ways in which the Nasserist regime basically completely subverted urban space, uh, recreating parts of the city uh, in its own image. I think on the ethical side, um, one of the ideas behind this volume, but also the project as a whole and both volume, is to engage uh, with the violent past of cities in order, in some important respect, to normalize violence. Not to clearly to justify it, but to make sense of it as a constitutive element of urban sociopolitical orders. We can think, for instance, uh, and that's the way, you know, I think most of us involved, involved in the projects have, have been thinking about it. Uh, we can think about the process of retelling and analyzing stories of violence uh, as a way to come to terms with it and to pay respect, uh, our respect, uh, to its very many victims, uh, well, today as in the past. So. Overall, the chapter in the volume, the chapters in the volume explore multiple urban conditions in time and space, covering from the late 18th century to the 1990s, and covering an, a region from Tunisia and, uh, 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 to Iran. As these conditions were shaped by a variety of actors, both powerful but also powerless. Um, and so we have urban elite, ordinary residents, state authorities and crowds, political activists, social outcasts, and different types of entrepreneurs of violence. While the topic of violence might evoke a certain monotony, I hope, and apart from despair, clearly, I hope that the variety of causes, actors, manifestations, and outcomes featuring in the volume will help to overturn stereotypes about who's violent and who's not. And indeed, the stereotypical image of the Middle East as a violent place uh, 
and its cities in particular. It's something that uh, I, I think you know this our research wanted uh, uh, in some way to um, uh, challenge. Now, uh, just to give you a, a flavor of uh, the book contents, I mean, I, I, I imagine that most of you had <laughs> had the chance to look at the book. I mean, there are various uh, chapters. James Baldwin, for instance, discusses the political violence of, uh, uh, of uh, late 18th century Mamluk Cairo uh, elites in the context of the norms and conventions that regulated public life and, very importantly, access to particular urban spaces. Uh, Ulrike uh, looks, and I think she's going to talk about uh, uh, this uh, uh, later on, looks at, looks at how ideas of lower class masculinity and, uh, and entertainment uh, structure inter-quarter bloody conflict, uh, conflicts in 19th and 20th century Jeddah in, in Saudi Arabia. Claudia Grawi, uh, another member of, uh, uh, of our research team, explores in this book the 1967 riots in Dahran, uh, Saudi, eastern province of Saudi Arabia, oil-producing area of Saudi Arabia, as the result of the routine and structural abuse uh, <coughs> brought about by two decades of forced oil urbanization. So does Rasmus Elling with reference to uh, labor struggles in 1946 uh, Abadan in, northwest, in southwestern Iran, another oil city, and Rasmus is going to talk about it. Um, now, in my own chapter on Kirkuk, uh, I consider how violence has functioned as a key narrative motive and mnemonic device in the production and reproduction of bloody conflict in the city between Turkmens and Kurds in particular. And I take a long durée view. Uh, I, I look at it throughout the 20th century, but I look at it throughout two specific episodes of public violence that occurred uh, in the city. Now, the violent spatial politics of urban transformation features in Yasser Sheshtawi's tale of the Cairo fire of 1952, and I mentioned uh, uh, this article before, with reference uh, to the history of two of the city's most iconic hotels, the Shepherd's Hotel and the Nile Hilton. And of course, in, Ellis, uh, in Erasmus' chapter on uh, uh, Abadan, which singles out the social club as the venue of inter-ethnic labor uh, struggle between tribal Arabs and Persian activists. Now, um, I've just given you a flavor of the book. I've omitted some of the authors, uh, and I, my apologies to them. But, you know, it's kind of, time is short. <laughs> now, Within urban studies, I think there are three main issues that uh, this, at least this collection of essays uh, is kind of addressing. Now, the first uh, is the old kind of theme of urban networks uh, as specific arenas of public violence and as specific architectures of power underpinning civic conflict. So, uh, for instance, in my own work on Kirkuk, I'm look, I, I have looked not so much at this tension between Turkmen and Kurds as ethnic conflict, but as civic conflict, uh, which is actually, if you look at, at the literature of, at least of the Middle East, or at least of Iraq, it's, uh, it's a, sort of quite a different way of looking at it. Now, um, 
By looking at urban networks in this way, what actually is coming out uh, uh, is that uh, uh, there are often, uh, we found, very fine lines that separated bloodshed from political norms, social routines, and legally sanctioned behavior. In other words, this is a, an important thing because, uh, to me at least, it's very important because it addresses violence, violence as a state of Normalcy, normalcy rather than exception. Violence is ordinary rather than extraordinary. And, you know, in some ways, as a systemic and normative feature of urban public life. The second theme is that, which is a theme which is actually quite dear to me, is that of the city as a frontier. Uh, a front line acting as a vanguard of political and social activism, as well as, of course, of state repression or repression more generally. And indeed, you know, this whole idea of violence here emerges uh, as a condition of interdependence inter inter binding actors and spaces at different scales. And I think uh, the urban, suburban, national, transnational, global, and so forth. And there are a number of contributions that actually address this issue. And I think this scalar approach, uh, this, this idea of different scales, has been very important to fine-tune, I, I think, throughout the project, as I remember it, um, um, our understanding of violent urbanism at both micro and macro levels. The third theme is that of urban spatial politics. Uh, now, um, of violence as a moment of creative destruction and reconstruction of the city, and of course, as a moment creating uh, a process of memorialization of urban sites as a result of the encounters between violent crowds in different forms of state discipline. So we have um, a number of contributions which uh, actually um, uh, deal with this. Um, now, I guess uh, I'm... Uh, you have a couple more minutes. I've got a couple of more yes. minutes, okay. Let's say three. Uh, three minutes, yes. uh, okay. Now, um, I think, you know, there are, uh, I mean, I had something here about the ways in which we kind of, uh, what kind of violence, what is violence, how we, did we define violence in, in our project, and mm -hmm. something that we had discussed uh, at length, but perhaps we can actually, so you can ask this question and we can, <laughs> <laughs> and we can actually perhaps elaborate on that. Uh, now, I think there are, there are a number of, uh, of issues that uh, uh, with these two edited volumes we wanted to do. Uh, beside, of course, prompting regional specialists, both historians and non-historians, to see like a city, as, as I said before, uh, we wanted also to urge them to look beyond geographical and disciplinary boundaries. So both volumes in some ways, and particularly in my introduction, in my chapter one of the second volume, uh, invites scholars, activists, and policy makers dealing with other regions also to take notice of the Middle East. And in fact, I have written the opening um, chapter of the volume, which is called uh, um, Urban Life and Question of Violence, as a critical synthesis of themes and debates, and also 
as a roadmap for the study of urban violence in a regional context that hopefully will stimulate connectivities beyond the Middle East. And in, in, in this respect, it's uh, the LSE Cities program uh, seems an excellent venue to start uh, uh, this um, sort of uh, uh, conversation. Following the example of the authors, the reader is invited to enter a dialogue with methodologies, approaches, concepts, paradigms, uh, and case studies that have informed historical and social science research uh, on cities or on violence across different continents, uh, uh, regional, comparative, transnational, and national. And, and part of what we did also during the project was actually to you know, sort of familiarize with literature from uh, um, other regions, Europe, Africa, India, and so forth. Now, we felt that this was important not only to place the study of Middle Eastern urbanism, and particularly the that of violent type, uh, within comparative and, and, and global historiographies, but also to debunk the notion of regional exceptionalism, which is a notion that unfortunately sometimes is still there. Um, um, and it is there in some uh, uh, scholarship, but also uh, primary in public uh, um, and media discourse on violence, and particularly these days on terrorist violence. So I'll, I'll stop here. I hope I haven't gone on too long. It's, <laughs> it's your right, is Thank you. Gentle Rico Freitag. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, since Nelida has, in a sense, given the large overview and addressed many of the theoretical issues, what I'll mostly do in my 10 minutes or so is to actually go down to the micro level. Um, and one of the points, perhaps, which I'm rethinking, and, and that really happened preparing for this meeting, was to actually also rethink our own notion of violence in our own project, because we were very much... Um, dealing with public viol with violence in the public, with political violence, and so on. And in my paper, and perhaps even more conceptually now, as, as I'm talking about it and reflecting about it two years on, um, I'm actually dealing with the, with the omnipresence of violence, which very often is not termed violence. It's actually, in my case, it's very much hidden in sort of traditions and adad wa taqalid in Arabic, the, the traditions and habits, um, which is a you know, kind of cute, um, cute kind of notion uh, which deals with traditional games, etc. And I'm actually trying in my own paper to link these very localized notions which are linked to masculinity to the larger scene of political violence. So in a sense, I'm kind of also rethinking what we had defined at the outset of the project because you always need to limit. And just to talk about the normality of violence, I mean, we all can think of sexual violence, criminal violence, police violence, football hooliganism, crime, and of course then physical violence, both physical as well as structural violence. So it's really a kind of omnipresent phenomenon also in our own societies. Well, I was interested in the question of how crowds actually mobilize. And this, my starting point was a kind of the iconic violent event in Jeddah in the 19th century, which is the very public attack on and murder of a number of Europeans, the consuls, but also leading European merchants. Um, the 
killing of 22 of them and, um, you know, the, the wounding of quite a number of others. And this kind of stands out as the violent, the biggest violent event, really. Nothing like the massacres of Aleppo or Damascus or the like. Um, but I was wondering, where did the crowd that suddenly attacked these people actually come from? And how can that be linked to other structures in the city? And the interesting thing is that in Jeddah, as in many other Middle Eastern cities, and indeed in many European cities, if we go a little bit back in history, perhaps we don't have to go back in history that far, but the forms, the expressions have changed, and I'll come back to that. Um, uh, there, there was quite a lot of violence within the quarters and between the different quarters. Um, and when I talk in the following, I don't want to suggest, and that's quite important because it might come out differently otherwise, that all violence is linked to masculinity, because it might sound like it, that all, all violence is male. It was in this particular case, but that doesn't mean that historically violence is a male phenomenon. And finally, that what I'm describing is singular to Jeddah or to the Middle East. As I mentioned, um, if you look at literature on European cities in the Renaissance, um, if you look at literature on European carnivals, you'll find rather similar phenomena. Well, there was one particular practice, I'm now going very local, um, very pertinent among young men to the extent that it was almost considered to be a rite of passage um, from boyhood to manhood, the so-called popular game, of the Mizmar. Now, let me briefly describe, it's a kind of Two groups meet, each group sends forward one young man and they brandish a stick and when, and they, uh, while moving around a fire and when the sticks meet then this is considered to be a violation and very often the start of a quarrel or even a brawl between the two groups of men. And the question is then who is the most apt at provoking the counterpart but not actually touching his stick. Um, this was played by young boys, but developed to perfection among the so-called Futuwa. And the Futuwa were groups of um, unmarried young men, often from lower social strata, from the so-called Shakawiya in the local <coughs> parlance, who are hung out in the quarter. And they were considered to be a kind of social danger insofar as they were unmarried young men, so they could, you know, potentially... Uh, look at girls and bother them and so on, but at the same time there were also an element of order in the local quarters in that they observed who went in and out, um, questioned outsiders, strangers coming into the quarter, stopped them, and at times even um, assisted the Omda, the, the quarter sheikh, in the upkeep of order. <laughs> so they had a rather ambiguous role within the quarter. Now, within the quarter, um, the young men, as I said, competed often in public squares, often on religious occasions, at the occasion of marriages and other life cycle celebrations. Um, and if it was larger um, occasions, they would perform also in front of the notables of the quarter, who only rarely would join in. It's really, a, we have a sort of class or stratum uh, politics or division here. And the ones in the quarter who were the best at this game would then represent the quarter in Mizmars, which were happening between different quarters um, at the city level on religious holidays when the Egyptian Mahmal, the uh, shroud covering the Kaaba, would come to Jeddah and there were large celebrations to receive it. Um, when the governors or the sharifs arrived um, 
from journeys abroad or taking up the appointment or leaving, etc. So here we are back to the spatial politics mentioned by Nelida. And similar things have been described also actually in the two volumes for other Middle Eastern contexts. contexts. Reza Masoudi Najat in the first volume, for example, discusses Muharram processions in Iran as a similar demonstration of quarter solidarity and also as a similar expression of rivalry between different quarters. And for Damascus, similar things have been described in the context of the so-called Arada, um, which were also quarter competitions in a number of different games like wrestling, sword games, or horse riding. So what I want to get at is that we have here in the urban context um, competitions which at times can turn violent, which have a kind of subdued violence, which are an expression of masculinity um, and which are also an expression of a certain code of honor. And they're embedded in the local hierarchy, i.e. the notables are linked to these groups, but they're not necessarily the ones who actually um, perform these games. And these, because there's this hierarchy, these groups of young men can actually be mobilized in times of conflict, in times of crisis, as in this gender violence, which has been described in the literature quite a lot. But of course, and this is quite important, these local groups also can become actors themselves and actually drag the notables into conflicts. And this has been described for a number of different Middle Eastern cities. And of course, then once the crowd becomes excited, other bystanders might well be drawn in and become part of the uproar, of the um, rebellion, of the struggle, or of the attack. Um, and here we are back to the uh, networks, to the urban networks Nelida was referring to. And such an effect of crowd mobilization could even happen at ostensibly peaceful demonstrations um, that has been described, for example, by Roberto Matza in our first volume again, uh, where Muslim and Christian processions in Jerusalem coming together to celebrate the birthday of the Prophet were then uh, confronted with Jewish or Zionist processions, and that actually uh, led to a, um, well, to kind of local um, riot or uprising in 1920 in a very politicized atmosphere. So there was nothing particularly political or violent about these religious processions, but they could become mobilized. And all this, of course, tallies very well with what we know from European history. George Rudet has argued that ceremonial demonstrations almost lent themselves to violent escalations, notably where there were no peaceful other ways to express uh, particular grievances. So what I want to get at is that we should probably consider urban violence in politicized contexts in a kind of continuum from the formation of local gangs and rivaling clubs as well as other forms of crowd formation. And obviously, as I mentioned before, these crowd formations change. Um, it's very interesting that in Jeddah in the 1930s and 40s, football was discussed as a very useful activity for young men to let off steam. And this is a time when practices such as the Mizmah were considered by the Wahhabis as something rather dubious. So obviously there was another outlet needed for this kind of um, male activity for masculinity, but at the same time, football very quickly erupted again into quarter contestations and therefore was forbidden. And then there's a large discussion about how to 
um, allow f whether to allow football again or not in Saudi Arabia. But it's interesting because it reminds us of the football, of the type of football hooliganism, which we can actually observe if we look at European football clubs. And I think this country also has a certain history of this. In, uh, in Syria, uh, Philippe Khoury has described very well how the traditional arada, which I mentioned as a similar type of popular game, became politicized and was, was actually used by nationalist actors for demonstrations in the political struggle. So we should perhaps be less surprised when what might start as a peaceful demonstration is taken over by gangs with a certain will or readiness um, to also exert violence. And one can observe this, again, in anti-globalization um, demonstrations. We've observed it quite a lot in Germany these days in the pro- and anti-refugee demonstrations, etc. So there's always a potential of abuse by youth gangs or um, groups who are gathered for initially peaceful purposes to then uh, be hijacked for political aims. Now, as a historian, this research certainly made me understand the extreme relevance of what is rele often relegated to the um, field of folklore, um, because you don't find out about these traditions if you read local histories. You only find out about them if you look at local poetry, at oral history, or at specific books on the um, traditions uh, of particular uh, groups. So, in a sense, um, the relevance of what might be called historical anthropology became very evident. And given the paucity of material, the comparative look at scholarship on notably the European context was important to see structural similarities. And I'm sure one could potentially push this research much further and try to systematically investigate connections between such between political violence and, and public masculinity formation without, and I'm, I'm saying this very consciously, without wanting to, uh, in a sense, go back to an evolutionist or biologistic uh, interpretation of violence. But I think the sort of systematic investigation of crowd formation could actually contribute quite a lot to this debate, which apparently exists in, among sociologists and psychologists as well as historians about how crowd violence actually happens, whether it is a socio-cultural phenomenon or indeed something which is sort of embedded in the very nature of human beings. But this would um, really need a larger comparative agenda and is perhaps one of the things which our volume could also inspire. Thank you, Ulrike. Let us hand over now to Rasmus Christian Elling. Okay, thank you very much. <clears throat> I, um, I think I will start off by, uh, by thanking Nelida for, uh, well, there are so many things I should thank Nelida for. First of all, uh, for uh, bringing me into the uh, exceptionally dynamic and uh, stimulating intellectual field that she created together with our outstanding friends in Berlin through this project, but also by joining uh, bringing in other people here in London while I was here, uh, opening up to interdisciplinary discussions, having always a curiosity towards social theory and radical theories of the city, and not being just an orthodox historian. 
uh, and also opening up to fantastic people like Sami Zubeda that I met through this project and, um, and our Berlin team, of course. And that was just an amazing and very, very uh, uh, rewarding experience for me coming in, as it were, back then also fresh off the plane from London, uh, from Copenhagen into London. And the leader asked me at the job interview, so if you were going to study urban violence in Iran, what would you look at? And my knee-jerk reaction was, well, Tehran, of course, because, you know, Tehran is the city in, in Iran. But thankfully, and this is my specific thank you to you, Nelida, she asked me, yeah, but, well, have you considered looking at Abadan? So Abadan is a city that used to be a spectacular and very central, important city, not just for Iran, but for the world, but is uh, currently a forgotten uh, city. Um, it was also for me an unlikely choice, but I am very, very happy I made this choice because the research I did uh, under the wings of Nelida has shaped me as a scholar since then, and I'm still working on Avadan. I can't uh, let it go because it's such a fascinating fascinating case, and one of the points with this uh, project is to bring in uh, the cities that are not uh, the obvious choices, I think we have cities that it's not just a project about Istanbul, Cairo, and Damascus. We have Jeddah here in the project. We have Abadan. We have a lot of interesting cities in the Middle East that have been highlighted through through this research project. So Abadan used to be uh, a very uh, known city in the world. Uh, it used to be the home of the world's biggest oil refinery. It was a dynamic city of uh, 400,000 people in its heyday uh, before the uh, Iranian Revolution in 1978-9. to It was an international gateway for the global oil economy. It was a beacon of modernity in the Middle East and a very cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic city. Um, but the Iran-Iraq war uh, meant that the city was completely evacuated for almost eight years, and today it's back to its uh, pre-war uh, population, but it's a shadow of its mayor self. I've, I've been there, and it's, it's quite a, a depressing place that is still marked by, by the war and uh, unemployment and drug abuse and uh, a host of problems. But in its heyday, as I said, it used to be a very important place, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's been an extremely interesting case study to, to uh, delve into. So when the British um, struck oil in Iran in 1908, Abadan was just a couple of uh, mud huts on, uh, on an island on the extreme periphery of Iran, on the border with uh, what was then Ottoman Iraq. Um, people there were fishers and, and date farmers. And with oil uh, and the decision to create a refinery in Abadan came a phenomenal growth in, in Abadan. The power of oil bonanza urbanization was really materialized in Abadan and basically out of nowhere grew this uh, frontier city first, uh, built with prefabricated materials and tents and, uh, and, and sort of makeshift urbanism, and then into, it rapidly developed into a, a huge industrial center. And the first uh, people there, the, the first pioneers of the oil industry were uh, British uh, oil engineers and Indian labor. Uh, but then started a broad recruitment of uh, labor from the region, from all over Iran and from Mesopotamia. And from the 1920s onwards, Abadan was a large uh, multi-ethnic city with uh, all sorts of communities uh, in, in and around the city, uh, also uh, based in shanty towns that grew uh, until there was basically no more space on the island itself. 
Uh, when Churchill decided during World War I to change from coal to oil in the Navy, uh, it created a boom and uh, it generated an astronomic wealth, obviously, for the Anglo-Persian, later Anglo-Iranian oil company that was later to become British Petroleum. And since there was no state present, basically, in that area of Iran at that point of time, and since there was no infrastructure, the oil company sort of took on, it, uh, on itself to be an urban developer. Um, to build infrastructure, to build, create new neighborhoods, and soon also to build hospitals, universities, schools, and cinemas. And in, it, in turn, the company allowed itself to act as a sort of colonial power in the region. As you probably know, Iran was never formally a colony, but uh, the area around Abadan and the oil fields was treated very much like a colony. Um, and... Uh, oil company power was institutionalized through the labor hierarchy, which was ethnically demarcated uh, through a segregated urban geography, pitting different classes and ethnic groups against them, each other. And uh, the, uh, the sort of the socioeconomic inequalities were manifested in the urban planning and the design itself. It was a segregated city in the beginning, in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Uh, you would have uh, on the nice part of the island, you would have the uh, the British suburbs that were basically modeled after uh, uh, British, uh, yeah, British suburbia uh, with uh, nice lawns and tea clubs and cricket clubs and, and boat clubs and so on. And then you would have uh, the oil refinery acting as a huge barrier, a cordon sanitaire. And then on the other side, you would have the old city of Abadan and then the uh, the, the rapidly evolving shanty towns and slums where most of the labor was placed. But in time, the oil company had to provide better accommodation and also allow for a degree of social mobility so that some Iranians could, uh, could become engineers and, and rise in the hierarchies and obtain these suburban uh, paradise homes that were be being built here. So... It's a fascinating uh, urban history, and there's connected to that a treasure, treasure trove of, uh, of sources. So uh, in the, the National Archives in Kew here, but also in the National Archives in Tehran, and above all in the British Petroleum Archives that Nelida made me aware of, there's a wealth of material there. And apart from that, I was also able to find a lot of biographical and ethnographic material that that really turned this into an exciting project. Uh, but the question was how to deal with this question of violence. Um, it's been mentioned here that we deal with violence in different ways. There's the actual physical act of violence and the more structural uh, issue. And one of the great things that Nelida did was send me to Aberdeen uh, for, a, <laughs> for a conference on violence there. And we went out at night with a bunch of you know, philosophers and poets and architects and everybody working on violence. And we went for a pint at the pub. <laughs> and we were discussing this question of you know, epistemic violence and structural violence. And we uh, bumped into a couple of guys from Ireland. And we, they asked us, what are you doing here? And we told them about this. And they, they said, you know, this is crazy. There is only one kind of violence, and that's when there's actually some physical harm involved. So I think in this project, we are, we are we're trying to, to narrow down, on the one hand, a concept of violence that will sort of be our, that will calibrate our view on the sources, but on the other hand, also be open to sort of broader interpretations. And in that broader per in interpretation, there is... Um, 
a distinction you could say between spectacular violent, uh, what is apparently spectacular and apparently exceptional, and then the sort of normalized, barely visible, seldomly recorded structural violence. And uh, there's plenty of both in Abadan. Um, in terms of the structural violence, I, I looked at it, uh, first of all, uh, as I mentioned, in the uh, segregated geography of the city, in the urban planning, in the blueprints, how did they actually uh, make sure that, for example, the Indian community was separated from the Iranian community and who would have access to what water pumps and what times of day. So I looked into the uh, blueprints and the reports and the very interesting debates going on between uh, people within the oil company. Uh, I should mention that uh, in the 30s they brought in a student of uh, Luchin who uh, planned uh, Delhi, New Delhi, and uh, a lot of the ideas that were institutionalized in Abadan at that time came from British India. Uh, and actually also a lot of the officers who were employed by the oil company had a background, a military background normally from British India, so they brought with them a whole, you know, uh, tradition of dealing with multi-ethnic problematic cities. How do you separate people uh, with walls and roads and so on? So there's a whole uh, structural violence embedded in the social engineering and urban planning in the city that I looked into and the colonial imagination of purity and danger, uh, the germs, the imagined germs of the native town that shouldn't be permitted to slip into the to the, to the white part of uh, Abadan and so on. And then there are the more spectacular uh, examples of violence and um, I tried to sort of look into the oil company record to see what did they record as exceptional, what was violence in their view and we had the sort of the general urban violence that Ulrike also mentioned, uh, brawls and fights that broke out during gambling or in the, in the red light district of the city uh, and then the, a whole set of questions related to how do you police this city if there is no clear state presence and the oil company is not acting formally as a colonial power, how do you deal with this? One of the ways that the oil company dealt with this was to pay uh, Arab tribes from the vicinity to beat up uh, anyone who made trouble in the city or to institutionalize their own sort of semi-illegal, semi-legal police force or to bribe local police officers into actually doing something about this. Uh, and there are some really fascinating uh, documents related to this. And then there's the violence between different communities, sometimes in ethnic terms, but not always. And even the incidents, uh, incidences we have of what seems to be intercommunal, which is to say ethnic clashes, when you look closer at them, you'll find out that it's not always actually ethnic clashes. There is definitely a question of, uh, of uh, class divisions and different labor categories involved. Um, I looked into this also as an expression of a sort of a divide and conquer strategy in the city. How do you uh, sort of give some privileges to certain groups in the city and, and they were able to, uh, the oil company was able to, for example, pit Indians against Iranians uh, in several times. And then there's another set of spectacular violent events in the city uh, connected to the repression of the nascent labor movement in, Iran, in Abadan. Uh, so I mentioned use, using tribes and bribing police, but also threatening with possible military intervention from Basra, which is just across the river where there was always a regiment of British soldiers ready to move in in case the refinery itself would be threatened by 
this uh, very, very interesting labor movement that grew up. So I looked specifically at two events, one in 1942, which was a riot that was um, uh, basically a group of Iranian riffraff or hoodlums, as they're called in the sources, attacking an Indian part of the city, looting and um, stealing the possessions and also killing some of the, uh, the Indians working in, in Abadan during that. And as I unpacked that and, 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 and uh, investigated it, it, it turned out to be related to food rationing schemes during World War II in Abadan, when Abadan was occupied by uh, British forces, actually. And uh, I looked into the use of um, martial law and military governorship uh, and how the oil company used that as an excuse, used World War II as an excuse to implement a series of... Uh, uh, security measures that could curb the growing labor movement in, in Abadan. The other case study I had, which is in this book, is on the 1946 oil strike in Abadan. Um, after the withdrawal of British troops from Abadan, uh, it opened up a space where the Socialist Party, Tude, and the trade unions could basically take over the city. So they took over the city in a very orderly and disciplined uh, manner. Uh, but obviously the oil company would not accept that. And the, the standard story is that they then bribed a group of Arabs in the city to confront the, the labor movement and it turned into violent clashes and after that they could uh, again sort of um, enforce martial uh, law and military governorship. But again, as I looked into this case, I found out that um, there is of course a long history of Arabs in the vicinity of Abadan being marginalized by the oil industry, but also by the very Persian-centric nationalism that dominated the, the building of the nation-state in the first half of the 20th century under Reza, Khan, Reza Shah in Iran. And uh, some of these Arabs um, saw, uh, saw an opportunity for claiming a space when the British left in, in 46, and they did so by building, by opening a club a social club. And this sounds uh, sort of uh, innocent, but it, it turns out that the social clubs, which plays a huge role in the history of Abadan, were sites of uh, political activity. So in the beginning, the social clubs were only for white people. They were only for uh, first-grade employees of the oil company, <laughs> and they consisted of sort of uh, small casinos and uh, social clubs where people living in the neighborhood of Brehm, the white <coughs> part of the city could socialize, but in the 30s, the company sort of uh, accepted that uh, the Armenian and Jewish and Iranian uh, employees of the company also wanted their own social clubs, so they opened up a, a number of social clubs, and by the time that the, the, the 1946 oil strike broke out, there was a whole network of uncontrolled spaces actually created by, financed by the oil industry that were turned into a network of anti-imperialist opposition. And in that dynamic, the, the, the local Arabs in this city also wanted a stake, and they wanted also to be part of this forging of a modern anti-imperialist Iran that was actually a prelude to the 1951 oil nationalization movement under uh, Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh. So it was it was uh, it was a fantastic three years working on this project, and I'm, I'm still looking into Abadan because what occurred to me then was that <clears throat> I, 
after having looked at all these incidents, uh, incidences of violence, looking into the, excavating the histories of violence from the archives, and then going to Abadan and interacting with Abadanis outside of Abadan, it was a completely different picture that emerged. They knew, they wouldn't hear, hear any talk of these histories of violence. For them, Abadan of the past was a fantastic place. There is a strong nostalgia for Abadan of the old days. For, for my informants, for the people I, I interacted with, Abadan was a, a, an extremely modern, open, liberal-minded, easygoing city where people were very international. It was a city that had direct uh, links to London, with the direct flights to London, and London Times would arrive every morning in Abadan. They would have the newest films being screened, the newest movies being screened on the, in the cinemas of Abadan. The first cinemas in Iran were in Abadan, the best cinemas. Air condition arrived in Abadan first, American cars, suburban lifestyle. For them, Abadan in the past was a fantastic place, and this, this focus on violence didn't fit with their idea of the past. And instead of just sort of brushing that as away as sort of nostalgia and selective amnesia, um, I took it on me to also investigate that aspect of it, and that resulted in a, in, a, in another project which I'm working on right now, which is a sort of open access public history project where we are bringing in academics and non-academics who would like to share their vision of the past of, of this city. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a growing project. It's a work in process. But what is amazing is that there are Ab Abadanis all over the world. There are huge Abadani communities in Los Angeles, in Sweden, here in London, in Iran, in Tehran, everywhere else but in Abadan, it seems. And they're very much interested in representing their part of the history, which is not a violent history. So I think that should be okay. one of the final Thank points. you very much. Uh, we have just over half an hour for questions and discussions, but could you join me, first of all, in thanking our panel? We will um, applaud you before we interrogate you. And um, I do want to have the privilege of asking the first question. I love the idea of that Abaddon, Aberdeen. Um, <laughs> you, you, you could oh, yeah. certainly profitably do a... Um, a project on urban violence in Aberdeen, oh, yeah. but um, <laughs> I, I have to ask you the, the urban question, actually, as, a, as an urbanist, because in your presentations now and um, in the introduction to the book and, and in the, the various contributions to the book, you, you take a great deal of care to thematize violence, um, different categories of violence, modes of violence, from the structural and, and the clearly repressive forms of state violence to almost carnivalesque forms of, of violence in the way that um, Ulrika was, was speaking of. Um, and I wanted to ask you about the question of thematizing the city in a similar kind of way. It's an obvious question to ask, and in, in a way it's a kind of a cheap question because to a significant degree you're, you're using the city in a conventional sense. Um, anything that people call a city and think of as a city is, a, is an urban environment. Um, you're quite careful, Nalida, to say we don't just want to use social movement kind of frameworks mm. to mm. think about mm. uh, the mobilization of violence in cities. But some of the things that come out of social movement theory in the city about the conditions that cities create, the opportunity structures that, that cities create, are true for opportunities to engage in violence. So there's something about the essential characteristics of urbanness, which is concentrations of people, density, um, the coming together of diversity, whether it's uh, ethnic cleavages, class differences, or the kind of antagonisms of small differences that we see in 
groups of young men from different neighborhoods um, coming into contact with each other. Um, but I wanted to ask you to reflect a little bit on that urban question such that you can draw these parallels not only from the modern metropolis of Cairo, the ancient cities of Baghdad and Jaffa to uh, oil metropolises under colonial, corporate colonialism like Abadan, and then on again to cities of South Asia and Latin America and, and European history. What is it about the urban that's running through these different texts? Um, who starts? <laughs> How do you know a city when you see it? Um, How do you know urban violence when you see it? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there are two issues here. Uh, first of all, I mean, uh, we come from, or at least I came to this project from a very area studies perspective mm. uh, rather than an urban studies perspective. Uh, therefore, uh, it was very important at the very beginning for all of us, given that actually the literature, particularly historical literature on cities in the Middle East, is very limited if you compare it with other regions, India, Africa, and so forth. <laughs> so we wanted in some ways to um, try to, in a, quite a conventional way, uh, perhaps to the, to the eyes of urbanists like you, to try to um, look at different uh, um, kind of uh, um, uh, urbanities. Mm. Uh, now, um, what, uh, what is urban? First of all, I think uh, what was important for us uh, is to try and to understand the ways in which a particular event, a particular process, uh, was understood as being urban mm. by the people involved. Because, of course, you know, um, uh, um, you can say, okay, you can have crowd mobilization and you have a particular type of events. They can happen in the countryside as well. They're not necessarily urban movement. Uh, also, we wanted to, we come from this kind of uh, self-perception of, of what was considered to be urban. Mm -hmm. And the ways in which uh, uh, actually uh, particular type of spaces and institutions that traditionally and in a more modern kind of period uh, uh, were located in cities uh, in the area we are, we are looking at mm. were playing into the game. Um, so, for instance, one classic example is that, that, that in a sense, uh, that, that relates to Ulrike's work on, on the Mismar and Jeddah, is this idea of quarter, of urban quarter, which is an idea that very much uh, permeated the history of the historiography of the Islamic city mm. and the Islamic world. It was a very traditional type of historiography, very solid and so forth. So we wanted to look at certain particular contexts, taking up from also previous historiography or urban studies and so forth, and examine uh, this whole idea of urban. Uh, what actually to me in particular, while, um, when I was preparing the, 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 when I was trying to put together the volume, and I must say, um, Rasmus, who was actually based here, was, was uh, actually um, quite instrumental in, in the organization of, uh, of, uh, of the materials. Uh, and of course also colleagues in Berlin were very helpful. Um, one of the things that I found very interesting is, is the whole idea of urban uh, boundaries and interdependence and this idea of discontinuity, discontinuities and discontinuities between city and countryside, the various <coughs> scales. Uh, and actually there are sort of forms of urban that came out uh, 
out of an analysis of the, of the scalar approach. I mean, ideas and phenomena and, and events that we didn't think they could be qualified as urban, they were understood as urban or they related to a particular urban context. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I've answered your question. No, you have, but, yes, uh, and I do, I, I myself like a conventional approach to cities, but there are lots of <laughs> urban theorists who are... Yeah, yeah, no, sure, <laughs> ...like sure. to deconstruct yeah, it. Yeah. Well, Please. I, I think basically we looked at old cities and new cities, mm. and I think the ones um, you're looking at, uh, you look... Mm. Well, Kirkuk has both, in a mm. sense, um, but also Claudia Rawi's um, work is also in a, a new oil city, so these would be... Um, examples of new urbanizations and the type, also the types of violence created in the process, whereas then we have quite a number of uh, studies, or probably the majority of studies, which look at old cities, and there we pay, we do pay special attention to the spaces where violence occurs, and also how these spaces shift over, at times, at least in some of the contributions, you can see that, for example, in the one um, on Iran by um, Reza Masoudi Nejad and how the, how the um, haram processions are actually shifted in order to calm down certain competitions. But then we also, and I think that's another important point, the city is important for violence as a particularly important stage. And I think Nora Lafi's contribution on Cairo makes this very clear, where in the context of the French occupation of, um, of Egypt, Cairo also becomes a place which is particularly center stage for contestations about um, the domination, not just of the city, but of the country as a whole. And she's, she's one who also works very much with this notion of scales from the very minute incidents which happen between two people to, indeed, this international conflict. Thank you. Let's, let's open it up. Can we take some questions? immediately here. And please do try and speak up for the recording. Mm -hmm. I think my, I'm loud enough. Uh, <laughs> I have a question for um, Dr. Freisberg, but before that, what do you mean other than it's forgotten? The whole Iran is a suburb of... of uh, <laughs> 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 That's how this was other than it's often thing. And I was very interested, both you and uh, well, much more clearly in your um, presentation and in uh, Rasmus's, but both of you talked about the conflict between the quarters um, in the sense of ethnicity or whatever quarters uh, Jeddah has. I'm, I'm understanding this from the Iranian, particularly Tehran, uh, point of view. And I was going to ask about two things. First of all, the lack of conflict, so the alliances between neighborhoods, and also mm, the analogy of the Mismar game itself, uh, that instead of uh, this skill is uh, rather provoke violence or create the threat of violence, but actually avoid it. So I was going to ask you um, whether there, you have worked on or any work there is something about the subject of, first of all, creating alliances instead of conflict between these various quarters and the role of uh, avoiding or, the, or using the threat of war or conflict but avoiding it in the political structure of the city, in the, in the, in the um, relationship between these groups, those notables and actual political operatives in the city. Wow. <laughs> well, I, I haven't found any material on alliances between quarters 
But then Jeddah is a is a small entity, or was a small entity. It is no longer, um, with uh, four quarters, about ten thousand inhabitants. So they, they there is really nothing. And this doesn't mean that it didn't exist. But I haven't found anything, and that's one of the big problems of a historian starting to or trying to investigate these kinds of issues. That um, in a sense, your material is is very limited. You are absolutely right as far as the, you could say, perhaps sublimation of violence is concerned. And there's a interesting, an interesting work on Yemen where, there, where Stephen Caton has worked on um, poetic, uh, this is in a tribal, not in an urban context, in a tribal, more rural context, if you like, um, where there were com poetic competitions between tribes, which very often prevented, in a sense, or at least um, calm down political conflict. So you're absolutely right that this is also a way of sublimating, is that the correct English term? Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Violence. Mm -hmm. um, it's, but, but it also shows, its, in a sense, its potential presence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just on this, um, it's ritualizing. Oh, ritualizing it, yeah. And of course, it's a very widespread phenomenon, including, of course, Italian cities. Siena is famous, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, all this uh, horse racing, whatever. It's all to do with the ritualized competition, which often broke into violence between the different quarters of the city, or read Romeo and Juliet, you know, and seeing the, the factional. Uh, uh, and of course, I mean, that has its, its functions. and partly functions is that by ritualizing conflict and violence, it actually uh, makes it less potent uh, in this respect. But the other point I want to make, Ulrika, uh, is about this question of masculinity. Um, I think it's very uh, uh, relevant uh, in relation to more, uh, more recent events, you know, after the establishments of these arbitrary uh, uh, dictatorships in all the uh, most of the region. Uh, the way in which uh, so many, um, especially the young, are subject to the predations of the everyday, the everyday state uh, of the of the police, the, the kind of the insults, the contempt in which people are held, the violence that's used against them. Uh, and of course, you see this clearly in the case of the uh, Tunisian event. You know, the Azizi um, uh, burning, burning himself um, precisely after such an incident. But then the corollary of this is once there is uh, a breakdown of <coughs> control, then you have quite spectacular violence, and you see this. I think perhaps very uh, clearly, not only in, uh, on a minor scale in Egypt when the first thing they did was to burn police stations uh, after the uh, well, uh, after the event started, but you see it more spectacularly in Iraq after the fall of Saddam Hussein. You know, and the way in which you know this kind of super violence that came throughout, you know, which uh, uh, various targets. But there's nothing, of course, specifically urban about this, or is there? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's the question. 
I actually I can't I can't really get your first question out of my mind. If you don't mind, I, I would like to respond Go to it because on one on one hand, and it relates I think yes. to what what Sami just asked. Uh, on the one hand, we I th what I liked with working in this project is that we we take the city as a site first of all, and somewhat what I think Abdul Malik Simon recently wrote. It's the, it's just a city after all, right? Mm -hmm. There's a city here. People call it a city. It's yeah. a city. End of story. So what happens in that city is, per definition, urban violence. But you could also argue that some of it could technically, potentially also happen outside of cities. So you mentioned football hooliganism. I think the latest trend in, in Holland is that they actually drive outside of the city and beat each other up. And also it turns out that some of the clashes in Abadan were actually not in Abadan. It was on, in the hinterland. It was on the outskirts. It was in the palm groves along the Chateau Arab. But on the other hand, I, I think the, we also look at it at, uh, at uh, so so that's that's sort of an antidote to to you know Lefebvre and recently Neil Brenner talking about planetary urbanization that is everywhere. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that we should dismiss the city as a practical mm -hmm. actual entity that you can study. But then there is the question of the city or the urban as a process and urbanization. And f in my case study, what was interesting was that the sort of corporatist, oil capitalist urbanization that you saw in Abadan then was copied in different ways to different cities in Iran by the Shah under his, his modernization project and it sort of became a, a template that could be copied elsewhere to create cities and that's how Abadan then spreads and becomes other cities in northern Iran for example. But also, I mean, it also not only in Iran but mm. also in the Persian Gulf, in yeah. the Arab states of the Persian Gulf, you have uh, Abadan, um, Ahmad in Kuwait, the old city of Kuwait that is, was modeled on Abadan, Abadan uh, sort of colonial connection as Rasmus has said, and Ahmadi and the other old towns in, in places like Kuwait, Bahrain, were actually model of urban development uh, throughout the region. So mm. oil, oil urban, urbanism was a very key kind of theme, mm. uh, particularly for, for me and Rasmus and Claudia Rawi was based in, uh, so we, we looked at uh, this type of neo-capitalist uh, city that emerged. Uh, in the third, well, mm. say Abadan in the 20s and 30s, and, and particularly gained momentous after the Second World War. And this adds to your, your thesis about the ordinary nature of urban violence, when in fact it's built in to the, to in the, the segregated planning yeah. structures of the city yeah. Yeah. along a kind of yeah. a military model. Because they were neo-colonial cities, basically. Yes. I mean, and colonial, I mean, there were colonial methods of control as well, still used. Not in the American one, but in the, the ones controlled by the British, mm. by what then became BP. <laughs> so, uh, may we take some more comments or questions from the floor? I ask whether you think violence has a future. Uh, it hasn't done terribly well in changing the fundamental nature of societies, and we have begun to see that if you look at it, which I'm not sure although I should probably not get slapped, but in terms of a manifestation of wanting to send out a message or frustration or despair or change or whatever it is, uh, people are now beginning to discover social media as a, as a means of doing that. Um, is social media think, simply going to end up being in, uh, 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 as the servant of violence or could it become in competition with violence? And could I just also ask, because you mentioned at the beginning of the leader, to what extent is 
the phenomenon of violence in the way it is expressed itself in the Middle East in any sense exceptional to the Middle East, or is it just the same in that Central America, South America? How much do we know about any of that? I'm, I'm that against way. exceptionalism of no, the no, Middle no, East. My old career has yeah. been... <laughs> geared towards working, <laughs> improving that the Middle East is not exceptional. Um, of course it's not exceptional, the Middle East. I mean, there are some wonderful studies of violence and urban violence in, in, in India. I mean, all the literature on cities, colonial cities and communalism in India is very good. Um, Africa, uh, South America, and so forth. So um, by all means, violence is not a Middle Eastern condition. Uh, Violence is there to stay. Um, well, I mean, you know, I'm afraid I've got a very kind of broad definition of, of violence uh, in, from this kind of perspective in the sense that uh, um, I see violence as a, as a key form of uh, association. And uh, in this, in a sense, really very much uh, fits in with this idea of ordinary nature of much of the violence that we can't actually <coughs> sometimes called violence uh, and so forth. So it's a very important, it's a very important form of association and actually there is this uh, um, historian of medieval Europe, David Nirenberg, who wrote uh, this uh, very, very influential book uh, called uh, uh, Communities of Violence uh, uh, that, that basically um, speaking about the convivencia in, in medieval Spain says that basically this convivencia, this idea of living together of different religious communities and so forth was actually predicated on violence, on the actual sort of routine killing of each other. So, um, I mean, you know, violence, I'm afraid, is there to stay, the extent to which, uh, uh, you know, you have mechanisms by which uh, it can be channeled. Uh, um, that's another story. I mean, it's, it's very much linked to place, space, uh, and context. But, uh, um. Does anyone want to take up the media question? Yeah. Because <laughs> one of the good things about city for cities just, violence yeah. is it tends yeah. to be mediated and recorded, and you know this is why historians can go into the archives and mm. find out about it. Because if it happened in a city, it's probably more likely to have been documented, um, even more so in a media age. Well, I mean, our media, uh, and actually Rasmus has written, one of the chapters he's written for the second, this edited volume is about uh, uh, languages of violence, because actually, mm. uh, as historians, uh, most of our kind of so-called primary sources, information comes from written sources, mm. the media of the day, yes. you know, like newspapers and whatever. Um, and, uh, and, I mean, perhaps, Rasmus, you can say something about this idea of language mm. uh, and, uh, uh, and the mediated aspect of, of studying violence in particular through sources. Mm. Um, yes, I think that, yeah, that chapter was mm. an attempt to uh, come to terms with the fact that we have different we, we were working in different registers, so we were a lot of people working with sources in different languages, Ottoman, Turkish, and Persian, and Arabic, and we need to sort of agree on what, what are the words that we are going to look at as explaining, as, as expressing some kind of violent uh, event, and how do we sort of 
mediate between that and then our own vocabulary? It's the same question of the Irish guys in the pub in Aberdeen who have a different set of ideas of what is violence and what isn't violence, I think. So that, that chapter was mostly on is that. that. Irish exceptionalism. <laughs> 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 or it's the exceptionalism of people who have actually been involved in violent conflict who have a different, I think, yes. perspective yeah, of what violence right. is and isn't. Uh, so, yeah. But um, perhaps coming back to the social media, I, I guess you mean the, the current electronic social media yes. like yeah. Twitter, oh, Facebook, uh, WhatsApp, yeah. whatever. And I mean, if, if we look just as, at the past five years in the Middle East, um, I think there, there's a general agreement that um, not only the Arab Spring, but also many of the violent events that either happened during the Arab Spring or during what has been termed the Arab autumn or winter or whatever, were actually perhaps to some extent prepared by the social media, but wouldn't have happened had not groups of people got together. And the same thing is happening if we look again at my own country, at Germany, um, the whole mobilization in terms of the right-wing demonstrations we've been seeing, much of that, the mobilization, the contacts, the announcement of demonstrations, get-togethers, whatever, might have happened via the social media, but had those thousands and ten thousands of people not got together, I think Chancellor Merkel today would be talking a different language from what she is talking. So, you know, I, I think the, the social media are important. They've, they've certainly changed the ways in which mobilization is taking place, but um, I think the actual getting together and the actual attacks and the, the physical violence still plays an immense role also in influencing official policies. Much has been made of the Gulenist uh, WhatsApp group in yeah. recent events as, as well. Sure. I wanted to pick up on a, a theme which I, I found in your question as well. As I noted down when Nalida was speaking about the outcomes of violence, and you referred to violence in terms of the creative destruction and reconstruction of cities. And we're quite used to thinking in those terms um, in the analysis of war and conflict and, and the impact of the, you know, that large-scale systematic violence on cities. It's part of urban planning and development, actually. Could, would you think of instances, I mean, you've talked about the design of the, the neo-colonial city um, along these kind of martial lines or with um, segregation and order centrally in mind, but could you give us some examples of um, the effectiveness of violence in shaping the futures of the cities that you've looked at? Um. Well, one thing which comes immediately to mind is um, looking at the development of Jeddah, which is mm. not a new, newly planned city. You have, in the course of the 19th century, a movement of the city to the north, including the presence of Ottoman barracks in the north. And after the violence I looked at in the middle of the 19th century, you can note that all the consulates moved to the north, mm -hmm. which is presumably that, so that they are closer to the to the state power, the Ottoman uh, soldiers. And that then also sparks the whole development of a new quarter, also because it was less built up, etc. There are a number of reasons. But I think here you can see how violence, in a sense, also contributes. I'm not saying it's the only, the only contributing factor. There are many others. But violence contributes to a particular movement in a particular direction in concrete urban development. And that in sort of not the very modern 
planning, but a sort of intermediate phase, if you like, of urban planning. Mm -hmm. yeah, look how sectarian violence has transformed Baghdad, for instance. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I think... Yeah, I was thinking about this idea of outcomes and effectiveness of violence. And uh, in, in some of my work on Kirkuk, which was partly related to the oil mm. strand, but also I looked at communal histories and so forth, uh, it's, it's this idea that particular violent events, uh, they are retold, recounted, and so forth, and they contribute really to the memorialization of urban space, because there are certain spaces of the city that become clearly continue to mm. be identified in communal histories as places for violence and mm. places for contestation and so forth. So it's the memorialization um, of space uh, and as linked to communal histories in the case of Kirkuk, because you have the Turks and, and the Turkmens. Uh, but also there is another amazing example, which is in the contribution by Dina Khoury on uh, the Ba'athist security policies in Basra during the Iran-Iraq war uh, up to 1991, the Intifada, where actually she discusses this whole notion of Ba'athist security surveillance uh, technique and the ways in which uh, the Ba'athist war machine uh, basically completely subverted uh, the city in a sense that, uh, um, uh, you know, by 1991, you had no more conventional boundaries between what was Basra and the rural areas, uh, both in terms of physical space, because, you know, areas were destroyed and so forth, but also in the understanding in social networks, because people were moved and so forth, and new cities, satellite areas were created. Mm. So that was kind of a sort of uh, urban upheaval and, and a consequence of this violence, uh, structural violence by the Baathist party and, and physical, obviously. Did you want to come back? No? I, I don't want to. Say, isn't it okay if I ask you a second question? Indeed it is, yes. Uh, the question you asked, uh, could I ask you, either of you, about the example of Dubai, where... Uh, Defining the city is very, because if you define conventionally the city as separate from countryside, thing from ancient Mesopotamia, there is no countryside in Dubai. And um, <laughs> sort of countryside, <laughs> like Jabal Ali have basically ceased to exist as separate countrysides. How would you put that question of what is a city and what is a urban violence in somewhere like Dubai? Dubai is historically a city-state, so we can start talking about historical city-states, poor cities, and there is quite a lot. I mean, this is my sense. Uh, uh, Dubai is uh, is a city-state, but Dubai has an interland. Well, it does it. Obviously, spit me, but you know, city-state and hinterland city-states from ancient Akkad, uh, the whole point of it was that it's city is where regulates distribution of production from the countryside. There is no production in the Dubai countryside. There is no countryside. There is space, obviously. But there is nothing in Dubai that relates Dubai to the space that <coughs> stands outside the boundaries of the city. Except what about the world? Yes, yeah, that's... Of course. <laughs> yeah, it distributes the whole products of the world in a sense of that. And we do have urban violence of particular kind in Dubai as well. Oh, yes. I mean, I mean, well, I mean, I, I, I haven't done a historical study of Dubai, but for sure, um, I, you shouldn't 
be quoting me on this, actually. <laughs> 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 I work on the gov, so. But suddenly, I mean, for a start, uh, um, all the security and surveillance systems that uh, in places like in the Emirates uh, are in place, I mean, you know, um, certainly, you know, they, 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 they tell, and this is a recent phenomenon, uh, they tell you something about this type of structural violence, although there is no actual physical violence, uh, or at least is not the reported, it is, is contained, but certainly there is a surveillance, surveillance and disciplinary system in Dubai that actually, and, and in other places similar, that actually is very reminiscent to uh, the old cities, the yeah. early old yeah. cities, Rasmus and I, we, we were looking at in the project. So, I mean, there is a continuity there as a story, and I always have to, <laughs> to find this type of continuity. But, of course, you're referring to the, to the more general problem of uh, the originally walled cities, which were nice, definable entities, um, you know, kind of growing and absorbing huge areas and the question, do we, can we still draw boundaries between what nowadays is considered to be part of a larger conurbation or not? I mean, that's, that's the big systematic question, which is, of course, being discussed mm. a lot. I don't know, but uh, it really depends on to what extent people are displaced by the violence. In, in my case, it's extreme. So revolution and then war meant that basically the whole population of Abadan had to leave the city. And some stayed in Iran, but tended to stay in the cities that they fled to. And when the war was over, they didn't return to Abadan because the oil refineries had been rebuilt elsewhere. So there weren't really any job opportunities. So actually a lot of the people who moved into the empty bungalows that had been left behind were the people who had been marginalized in the periphery of the city. So you have a lot of rural Arabs who actually moved in and became urban Abadanis and are now rebuilding the city. But, uh, but you have Abadanis all over the world trying to reconstruct the city in different ways. And uh, it relates to, to the question of uh, whose narrative is it that will prevail. So on the one hand, you have people sort of using map technology to put down uh, pin drops on maps and say, this is where I lived, this is the street where I played as a kid, this is the school I went to, here are photographs, people will connect the photographs to, and it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to see how they recreate it. Um, but there is also, uh, it's, it's also connected to a traumatic event of being displaced and having to flee this place and not being able to go back in many people's case. I mean, a lot of people are now settled outside of Iran and they don't see themselves returning to, at least not to Abadan. Maybe now they can return to Iran, but they probably won't ever return to Abadan. And also Abadan, by the way, is a very polluted place now and it's, it's, it's not a very nice place to live. Um, so, but, but it's a question that, that pops up again and again because 
I was contacted by some people in in Oberdan who want to create. Uh, they want to build a uh, museum of the oil history, and they're part of the state. So they have a very particular narrative about the city. And for them, Abadan is the city of martyrs. It's the city of people who fell during the war with Iraq, and maybe also people who resisted British imperialism. So it's a quite particular view on history, and they're not really interested in the fact that Duke Ellington and Dizzy Gillespie did some wonderful concerts in Abaddon in the wow. 50s, right? It's, it's, it's a different history that they're interested in, and I think after they saw the website that I'm building, I haven't heard from them since, so, you know, maybe we won't be able, but I, one wonderful thing that came out of the Abaddon Retool project that came out of this urban violence project is this website, and as part of it, a an American guy who used to live in Abadan in the 50s and 60s, uh, he actually went back to Abadan recently and engaged with people there, talked with the, even the local authorities, welcomed him. He's an American citizen, and he's working now to sort of promote the idea of Abadan's past as a place where Americans and Iranians can interact now that things are opening up after the sanctions have been lifted. So in that sense, maybe, you History know... History media. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe uh, in that sense. But I would also remind you that, that in terms of new media, Daesh, uh, ISIS is also me using social media. So it can, and uh, school shooters and, you know, urban violence can very well be mediated uh, through, through, uh, through social media as well as being prevented by it. So I think it goes both ways. I'm going to try and squeeze in one last contribution, which is just here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've been listening that you're mentioning, actually you're using the term oil cities. So if this is the basic prerequisite for selecting your case study cities. Or some of them. Are there some. any other oh, no, just characteristics that you have used in your, in your methodologies? Because there are other cities. Oh, well, of course. Yeah, but we have uh, very different case studies. We have yeah. the new or the oil cities, but we also have quite a lot of what I termed old cities. <laughs> yeah, okay. um, you know, Ale Aleppo, yeah. uh, Damascus, Jerusalem, uh, uh, Dafzul, um, Tunis. The oil thing was a sub-project that grew out of uh, Nelida's interest in, in, in the oil history that island was sucked into through Abadan, and then it became <laughs> sort of a uh, sub-project together with your student, uh, Claudia Gravi, who was working on, on, uh, on, Dahran. Uh, on Dahran in, in yeah. Saudi Arabia, yeah. so it mm. became sort of a, a sub-project of it. But um, the question was, for us, and it's still a question, is there a particular kind of violence that comes out of oil urbanism? I think yes, that's an open that, question that still. That We're working on that. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. But obviously the labor movements that you see in, in these cities yeah. are the product of a particular set of spaces that are built by the oil industry itself. The infrastructure and the social clubs and the public spaces, even the refinery halls, the, the, the canteens where the oil workers uh, eat and meet and congregate and also discuss politics is the, you know, the, 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 the key point, I think, in these cities. Yeah, and, and one thing, I mean, I must say in general, uh, because there is very little, when we started the project, apart from ourselves, <laughs> we're actually organizing the project, it was very difficult to find uh, people who actually did the urban and the violent side. Uh, mm. I mean, original research and new research and whatever. So sometimes, uh, uh, thematically, 
it, it was okay. We could organize thematically. So we had oil, we had crowds, we had street politics mm. and so forth. We could do that. But in terms of case studies, one of the ideas that we all had at the beginning is, is this whole notion of let's democratize the study of the Middle East city, let's study different cities as well and so forth. Uh, but also, I mean, you know, uh, in some cases uh, uh, it just happened that we had particular case studies because certain people worked on particular cities. Last word. But there know. was also the temporal di dimension because we also had from yeah. empire yeah. to nation yeah. state and we were interested to see how state, well, state organization but also state violence changes from the imperial to the national. I mean, Context, in a sense, yeah. I, I'm not sure we reached a final conclusion. Yeah. My own conclusion would be, just to sum it up, that as centralization and therefore also state control progresses, without necessarily, you know, succeeding everywhere, um, the, the kind of organizational forms also of civil society, but also violent civil society also change. And then the, in a sense, the oil cities are a particular subcase of these, um, of this wider change. Is the capitalist cities? Is there is the colonial city, the neo colonial city, neo colonial capitalist city? We're really yeah. getting into thematizing yeah. this city yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Just yeah. as we're we're coming to a close, uh, before we do close, I, um, may I remind you that um, the discussion never stops at the Middle East Center because tomorrow evening we have Lahir Talabani, who is discussing the role played by Kurdish security forces in the fight against ISIS. So if you're interested in that, some of you may already have registered for it, but if you're interested in that talk with Lahir Talabani tomorrow night, there is more information on the MEC website. Please, uh, may I thank again our speakers, Nalida Fukara, Uriza Faisal, and Rasmus Elling, and thank you all for your contributions this evening. <laughs>